Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground, the show where we explore what it takes to make meaningful change in such a divided country. I'm Van Jones. The COVID-19 pandemic has just gone on longer than any of us could have imagined. It's touched everybody in a unique way. Like many of you, I'm a parent, so it really touched me. My kids were in Zoom school all of a sudden, and they can't go do sports, you know, for a year plus. I could tell that it was having a big impact on them. They didn't like learning as much. Half the time, they weren't even paying attention during Zoom school. And it left me really worried. Like, what are the long-term implications of something that is this disruptive of a normal childhood and childhood routines? And I know a lot of parents also have those worries, not just looking back, but looking forward. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has declared that children's mental health now is a national emergency. According to the journal Pediatrics, more than 140,000 children lost a close caregiver as of this past June. So the amount of toxic stress that's being imposed on this generation could have detrimental long-term effects. That's why I knew I wanted to bring Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris on this show. Now, Dr. Burke-Harris is the former California Surgeon General, and she spent her career studying adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs. Nobody is more qualified than she is to share their wisdom and their guidance on how we as parents and as a society can support our young people and help them to move forward through all this. Now, to get the most out of a sit-down with somebody like her in a time like this, I knew I needed to incorporate real voices of people who are facing real challenges. So in this episode, it's not just me asking questions. You're going to hear real listener questions, people looking for guidance just like me, just like you. And I left my conversation with Dr. Burke Harris actually feeling more hopeful, more informed, and as a parent, more prepared to help my own kids. I hope you do as well. Stay tuned for my conversation with Dr. Burke Harris right after this. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible 
your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Doctor, doctor, doctor. (laughs) I am so glad to have you as a part of this Uncommon Ground community and the conversation that we need to have. You know, I think that There's not a single adult in the country right now that is just not really worried about what's happening to our kids. First of all, you are so relatable as a as a working mom getting it done. Uh, You're also kind of practical because you are a medical doctor who has looked at the effect of childhood trauma in a way that almost nobody else has and can help us understand that. And lastly, you're just inspirational. Because you have climbed to the top. They had to invent a job for you. (laughs) They didn't even have a job in California for you. So you became the first ever uh, Surgeon General uh, in the state at at a moment uh, where we needed a Surgeon General in the middle middle of the COVID crisis. So somebody who is relatable, who is practical, who is inspirational, who can help us figure out how to help our babies. So thank you for being here. I know you just uh, stepped down from that post after four years of being the pioneer. How does that feel? Looking back over the four years, what's present for you right now? Well, first of all, thank you for that very kind introduction. And I will say that I feel proud. I, I mean, I feel really good about what I have contributed. You know, as someone who has always felt called to public service. Actually being here during a moment of crisis has been an extraordinary privilege. You know, I'm a person that when I was in my medical training, you know, when I was in residency and I would be in the intensive care unit and something terrible was happening, I would think to myself, I'm so glad I'm here at this moment to help make this more bearable for this family. And I feel like that's the, that's the way I feel about my tenure as California Surgeon General. I feel like I'm so glad that I was here at this moment to help people understand how to keep their families healthy. It's a great reason to get out of bed every morning is to help people make it through. Well, look, you know, as a California resident raising my uh, kids here, I'm proud and glad that you were in that position and in that role So let's uh, cue up that first uh, voicemail uh, for the doctor. Hey, Van. This is Cynthia from Fort Worth, Texas. I was wondering, um, how do you keep a kid who is neurodivergent, specifically maybe ADHD or epilepsy, thriving in this pandemic? Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's a great question. And this is something I can speak to from experience because two of my kids have ADHD. And what we know is that kids with ADHD and any child who is neurodivergent, what they need is scaffolding, 
right? They need they need supports that help to strengthen the parts that are where they experience challenges. And one of the things that's re- that was really helpful to lots of kids during the pandemic, so neurotypical kids, neurodivergent kids, is routines, right? That's the hard thing about the pandemic is that it disrupted all our routines. You don't know what to expect and having things be unpredictable was is really difficult. And so one of the things that I did um, for my kids, which I recommend for everyone is, you know, have that routine. You get up at a certain time, then you have breakfast and then you, you know, you have your schedule and whether you're having homeschool or whether you're going off to school, we're going to still keep our routines of getting up in the morning at the same time, going to bed at the same time. And then particularly for kids who are neurodivergent, especially having them be able to anticipate what's going to happen next, because that was one of the hard things about the pandemic. So you can even write it down with a, on a list. And that's what I did for my kids. I wrote it down on a list and they could check the list and know what was coming next. And that was really helpful. And then giving them lots of encouragement and praise when they're able to do the things, right? Like when when they prepare themselves, oh, you did such a great job doing that. And really, really supporting them in those routines. Let's get another question uh, from another one of our audience members. This is Vishal from Los Angeles, California. My question is about helping children with the grieving process when a loved one dies. With COVID taking so many parents and grandparents, can you walk us through the do's and don'ts of grieving alongside a child? What are some warning signs we should look for of long-term issues? And what are some positive signs that show that we're taking the right approach? That's a great question from Michelle. I know a lot of people would be curious about that COVID and not not COVID, this question of, of grief. Yeah, um, it's a great question. So one of the most important things about talking with kids about a death is to be honest and direct while at the same time being developmentally appropriate. So I think that sometimes we think, oh, you know, I don't want, I don't want my child to feel scared or feel upset. And uh, sometimes we're tempted to create euphemisms. Oh, he, he went to sleep, right? Or, or explain it some other way. And what is really most helpful is to be straightforward and direct. I think Sesame Workshop did actually a great uh, resource on this in terms of explaining to kids, especially little kids, about, about death. But another thing that I think is really helpful is that one of the things that was really tough about COVID was that we didn't get to have many of the normal rites of passage even memorial services and things like that were not done in the same way. And having a way to honor the person who has passed, to recall some fond memories or perhaps doing something that that person, you know, loved to do or for littler kids, drawing a picture and, uh, you know, putting that out into the world some way or planting, you know, planting a plant or or doing something along those lines that allow us to be able to honor the person who has passed and speak honestly about um, that they died and that we will miss them and, you know, what that means in terms of that we won't be able to see them anymore, that they're not coming back, but we'll still be able to keep them in our hearts. And 
here are some things that we can do with the feelings that we have, right? So whenever I'm feeling sad, whenever I feel like I'm missing grandma, whenever I'm feeling like I have lots of big feelings that I can't see her anymore, what do I do, right? Okay, why don't we, maybe we can sing the song that she used to like, or maybe we can, you know. Um, light, light a candle. Light, exactly, exactly. Well, look, I, I think I think it's, um, I think not having that, that collective grief process made it really hard. Mm-hmm. And, and I think children in particular, I think we forget like the idea of death is a, is scary for grown people. Mm-hmm. But for a child, it's like, that's a big, big deal. And so I appreciate all of the, the, the advice and counsel that, that you gave, give. Uh, I have a nephew who's you know, almost 30 years old now, but when he was a child, he was very close to my grandmother and she died and he was still a little guy, maybe three and a half. And, you know, we thought he was dealing with it pretty well. And then, Maybe four or five months later, somebody, I think it was at Sunday school, and somebody said, DJ, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to be a good boy and go to heaven? He goes, I don't want to go to heaven. And she said, why? Well, my grandma went to heaven. They wouldn't let her come back. (gasps) Oh, yeah. So all the euphemisms that we were using (laughs) in his little mind, like he still, he was like, she's someplace that they won't let her come see me. So maybe that was a, maybe that's all you can do with a three and a half year old, but just understanding the importance of them having, you know, and they may, if they don't have a chance to do it collectively, they may need to be able to talk about it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the back of their mind. They may not have the permission to say anything. Uh, let's get the next question. in. Hi, Van and Dr. Harris. This is Ashley. I'm calling from Oregon. I'm the parent of two young children, and I'm curious how I can help them build their social skills during the pandemic when we are not really socializing. I have a four-year-old who was two when the pandemic started and a seven-year-old who was four and a half when the pandemic started or five. I would love advice. Thank you. That That's, I think, becoming increasingly a source of real concern for parents, just about no play dates. Yeah. I mean, how, do you, yeah. how does that work? I mean, what, how do you think about that as a doctor? Yeah, so um, uh, there's a, a couple of things that I can recommend uh, around helping kids socialize. Um, number one is for when it's just your I- immediate family, one of the things that's really helpful is allowing your kids to be able to guide the play, right? So one of the things that we don't even realize sometimes about our relationship with our kids is that it tends to be, we're tending to direct uh, how a lot of it goes, right? And so their way of viewing the world, their way of their decision making, their their choice of what's going to happen next, a lot of that happens through their play with their peers, right? Oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And so uh, that's one thing that we can do is really, you know, get down on the floor with them, allow them to direct that play let them tell us, you know, what we're going to do, what we're, and without being the one saying, no, you can't do that, or that's not, you know, really allowing them to be able to run the show. I think the other piece is um, if there's an opportunity for uh, your, understandably, if you're not having um, play dates with other families, there may be the opportunity for them to still interact with other adults who are, you know, if there's, if there's a grandma or an auntie or a 
uncle or other members of the family who are vaccinated, who you might feel comfortable uh, with the kids uh, being around, who can also have a different relationship than we have and have a different type of engagement than than we do as their day-to-day, everyday caregivers. The last thing that I would say on that is that um, the good news is that um, they uh, we know that the uh, clinical trial data for the zero to five-year-olds has been submitted to the FDA for review. So I would just say hang in there because we are hoping that vaccines for our under fives uh, will be coming soon and that will do a lot for helping kids be able to be to, to socialize in a way that feels much safer. Stay tuned. We're talking with Dr. Nadine Burke Harris about her expertise in adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and the solution she's got for our kids right after this short break. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. You can power up your playtime with the Nintendo Switch system, the home of Mario and Friends. You may discover exciting surprises with Mario, Princess Peach, and more in Super Mario Brothers Wonder or challenge friends to a race in Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. You can head to Nintendo.com to learn more about the Nintendo Switch system. Games and systems sold separately. I want to take a step back and talk with you about your area of expertise. You understand childhood trauma. Um, You understand uh, what happens to kids when they have these challenging situations. I want you to talk a little bit about that in the context of COVID and how you what you worried about? What, what's the danger? What's the problem here with having so many kids with their lives disrupted? Then I want to talk about some some of the solutions that you see for you know individual parents. Like what can we be doing more of, less of? So, but but please let's you know let's talk about it. Uh, childhood trauma is different, um, and there's adverse childhood experience, ACEs, and all these different things that you're so smart about. Educate this community about uh, childhood trauma and ACEs and all that stuff. Yeah. So my, as you mentioned, my background is in the effect of adverse childhood experiences on our health and well-being. And particularly, it's interesting, my background is as a pediatrician. But when I first learned about adverse childhood experiences, the research, I really learned about it in the context of this huge study that was done by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Kaiser Permanente that was published now over two decades ago. So it was a study about adults who had experienced trauma in their childhoods, and it was actually measuring the impact on those adults in their health decades later. And what, what that study did, they asked about 10 categories of adverse childhood experiences. These include physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, 
were growing up in a household where a parent was substance dependent, incarcerated, experienced mental illness, or where there was parental separation or divorce or intimate partner violence. And the thing that they found that was so striking, there were two things. One is that these things are incredibly common. So I think a lot of it, when we talk about these things, we it, many people who have experienced these things feel like, oh, I was the only one. I, you know, And it turns out two-thirds of Americans have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. And the other thing about it was that the more of these that a person has experienced, the greater the impact on their health. So the more likely that folks would have some, some of the things that we might expect, like increased risk for depression or substance dependence or uh, suicidality, but then also some things that people didn't expect or hadn't related with childhood trauma before. Things like diabetes, heart disease, stroke, autoimmune disease, right? And so that's where, for me, I read this research in the context of uh, being a pediatrician, caring for kids in a very, very underserved neighborhood of San Francisco called Bayview-Hunters Point, where this, is, this was my kids every day. Right? I was caring for child after child, and this is what I was seeing every day, was that they were experiencing these adverse childhood experiences. And so when I read the research and it said, hey, these actually pose a big risk to health, I wanted to understand why. And, and you're not talking about a risk to health today. You're talking about long term, that if, if you're not dealing with this appropriately at 30, 40, 50 years old, those dominoes could still be falling for, for that person. So that's exactly right. So as a scientist and a researcher, there's a couple of things. One, I could see that my, for my kids that it was affecting them today. Like it was, you know, the teachers and the principals saying, hey, this kid has ADHD right? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Or I could see, I could see, for example, that my kids had the highest rate of asthma of any neighborhood in the city or things like that. So I could see that it was impacting their health now. And what this- And you, you, and you, don't, you don't mean the kids to whom you're a mom. You mean a kid, the kids that you're taught. You don't mean your own yes, children. Yes. I, I, I refer you, to my patients, you, you the any patient children. I've ever had as my kids, but you are I, right. I'm talking about the, the children that I was caring yeah. for. And, um, gotcha. and so, so what was interesting about it was that when I read the research around how does stress and adversity affect the health of children, and I read the adverse childhood experiences study, what this confirmed to me was that experiencing stress and trauma and adversity in childhood, the impacts can be lifelong. When, when kids experience something scary or stressful or traumatic, it activates stress hormones, right? Like adrenaline and cortisol, that, you know, that heart pounding feeling when we experience something stressful and that those stress hormones have an effect on our body. And if kids have lots of safe and stable and nurturing relationships and environments, it helps to shut off the activation of those stress hormones so it doesn't lead to long-term harm. But if they don't have enough of those safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments, the body can actually become 
wired for stress, that, that those stress hormones can actually do harm to children's developing brains, their immune system, right? So more likely to have infections or develop autoimmune disease to um, their hormonal system and even the way our DNA is read and transcribed. So that's what we learned about how high doses of stress affects children's functioning in the short term and then also affects their risk of health problems in the long term. I think a lot of parents are now probably having some of those stress hormones and cortisol <laughs> and adrenaline and everything else because all of our kids have been exposed to a traumatic experience of COVID. And so how should we as parents think about that? And how do you think about COVID? Every child has had something surprising happen. They, maybe they lost a loved one. They lost a school year. So how do you look at it from, from that point of view? My gosh, I guess it was March of 2020 when we were uh, preparing the the first uh, shelter in place orders, right? When, when we fully, when we got what was happening. And um, I remember immediately just flashing forward and I actually drafted a memo for the governor and I said, listen, we are, we are going to see increases in depression, anxiety, uh, stress-related health conditions um, like asthma and diabetes and obesity. Uh, we're going to see it in kids. We're going to see it in adults. Just to get it on a real personal level, like a lot of a lot of folks are like, "Oh my gosh, you know, I'm having a harder time controlling my appetite. I'm I find myself reaching for a second glass of wine or a third glass of wine. I feel like I need something to take the edge off, right?" That's the result of stress hormones and how, how they function in our bodies. My office put out the California Surgeon General's uh, stress-busting playbook for COVID-19 specifically to help folks understand what are some of the strategies that they can do to, to use an understanding of how stress affects our bodies to be able to counteract that. So, so you actually you actually were able to give... A, a toolkit and a playbook for people so that folks could, you know, try to, to relax. And look, I think, honestly, people uh, should have a lot more empathy and sympathy. That little bit of disruption or significant amount of disruption that we all went through, people were sad. People were depressed. People had all kind of, you know, uh, problems and issues. Like you said, people were eating more, drinking more. But when you look at vulnerable populations, when you look at communities that are always under stress, what do you see? You see depression, you see mental health issues, you see people maybe drinking too much or eating too much. Rather than sitting and judging people and saying, well, y'all should just do better, maybe we can have more empathy and have more sympathy for folks and say, oh, I understand. <laughs> I can't imagine what it would be like to be homeless right now in the middle of a pandemic or what it would be like to be marginally housed or having to work two or three jobs where you're being exposed possibly to COVID and you're going to maybe bring that back to your baby. Can you imagine the stress that a lot of the so-called essential workers were under while we were, you know, hitting our apps and having them bring us stuff and saying we were stressed out? <laughs> there's, there's some empathy, I think, lessons available for, for us, for folks, rooted in the science, as you say. Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of empathy to understand because I think there has been a lot of blaming of folks. Like, why do those people or, you know, that person, when when you don't know what they've experienced in their life and to understand that this is truly a biological consequence of these high levels of stress hormones, I think is really important. But the other thing that I think is also really powerful is that it allows us to have empathy for ourselves and give ourselves 
a break. So one of the biggest things that I say is that self-care isn't selfish. A lot of parents ask me or caregivers ask me, how do I, how do I support my kids through this? How do I do all this? And here's the good news. The science is equally clear on that, right? When we talk about relationships and the, the healing power of relationships, the data is really clear that these nurturing relationships are healing and that the stress that we're all going through and the stress that our kids are going through, it is significant. It does increase risk. But when children and adults, but especially children, have those nurturing, connected relationships, they actually, they can do fine. They can do fantastic. And the thing that is most important for us as parents and caregivers to be able to be that for our kids is that we got to take care of ourselves. You're stressed out about work. You had a long day. You're pushing yourself too hard, right? And then you get home and your child is anxious about something or stressed out or the rules have changed at school or something. And so they're acting out or in pain, you know, whatever it is. And if we have the wherewithal to take a deep breath and tune in, profoundly improves their yeah. outcomes. Well, look, I mean, it's, it's funny that sometimes we have to go to the data to get to back to grandmama's wisdom. Seriously. <laughs> it's like, we got to love on these babies. Yes. A lot more and a lot harder in these crises. And it's, you know, sometimes you need the Surgeon General, general to tell you that, but it, it rings true when you say it. I do think that this is a time when, you know, more love and affection, more kindness, more empathy, more sympathy is really, really called for. I, I would love to get any final thoughts you have about your role, a couple of things that you feel like you got really right, you know, in, in your role, brag on yourself a little bit, and then <clears throat> anything you think is left to be done, um, any, anything that you want government to do more of or less of or start doing um, as you exit this stage and I'm sure go on to even bigger stages. I would say that, as I mentioned at, at the onset of the pandemic, it was clear that our stress-related um, health consequences were, were going to be increased if we didn't take substantial measures. And I'm incredibly proud that California successfully is the first state in the nation to launch ACE screening, really take that science of how early adversity and stress affects our health and put it into practice for prevention. The governor invested $4.4 billion, that's with a B, dollars in children and youth mental and behavioral health. It's a once-in-a-generation investment, and I'm extremely pleased that is going to make a transformative difference in the health and well-being of this entire generation, and it's never been more needed. Well, so when you say $4 billion, it's a lot of money. Break it down for me. Just how, how might a kid's life be benefited now with that money out there than, than before? To explain to me, if you're, if you're an eight-year-old kid uh, with this money spent, how's your life better? Increased access to services, increased access to prevention, having clinicians who are trained to be able to respond to the impacts of stress and trauma on kids so that we don't have to wait until our kids develop really harmful outcomes, right? That we can recognize the early signs. That's the work that we've done in training over 20,000 healthcare providers on how to 
screen for ACEs and respond uh, with trauma-informed care, training our educators, our teachers on trauma-informed principles and practices so that when a child who was out of school for a year dealing with stressors, parents who may have be struggling with their employment, when they come back to school and they're manifesting signs of stress, instead of that child being told you're a behavior problem, they have a teacher who has received trauma-informed training to say, oh my goodness, you're demonstrating signs of experiencing stress and I'm actually going to be part of the solution. I'm going to be a safe and stable nurturing relationship for you. And we're going to do that in the school environment instead of suspending you. Right. Wow. That's great. <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, just that. I, mean, that's why I want you to break it down because, you know, just that, you, you know, how many times have you seen a little kid go to school? They're leaving hunger behind They're going to school mainly so they have a safe place and some food. They're upset, they're angry, and then they get re-traumatized, re-stigmatized, suspended. Sometimes police police are called. Well, what the kid needed was a hug. What the kid needed was somebody to listen and support. So you're saying you're, those billions of dollars are going to make sure that teachers, in addition to all the subject matter expertise they have to have with regard to math and English, they have to have some baby expertise, some child expertise, given the fact that so many children have been traumatized. Yeah, that they, that they know how to recognize the signs. Well, uh, what, what do you hope happens next? What, what more can governments do? What more can California do? What more can we all do? Just, but I think especially at the government level, if you, if you were going to stick around for another four, four years, which you're not, what would, what, would be, what would be on your to-do list? Well, let me tell you. Um, so there was an article recently published in, in JAMA Pediatrics that says childhood anxiety and depression has doubled since the start of the pandemic globally. And what does that tell us? It's not twice as many kids who were genetically predisposed to anxiety of depression. It clearly shows us that our experiences and our environments shape our biology, right? And that is the, the work that we've been leading here in California is to recognize that we need to structure our society in such a way that we support our kids, support our caregivers, support our families and our individuals. It shouldn't just be up to the individual to drag themselves up, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, as we say all the time, when what we're dealing with is this extraordinary force of how adversity and stress and trauma affects our health. And if we don't pay for it, now in terms of, we're seeing it now in terms of mental health, but we also know from the research that, you know, for someone who has four more adverse childhood experiences, their risk of heart disease, the number one killer in America, one of the leading causes of healthcare costs doubles, right? Their risk of heart disease doubles. And so we can look and say, people are experiencing this extraordinary adversity right now. And we can either pay a little bit now to support the type of structures and communities and environments that help people be able to recover and be resilient, or we can be paying down the road for decades to come. Well, this is just an extraordinary conversation. You're an extraordinary leader. What I love is just the consistency of who you are. You know, it's about love. It's about caring. It's about support. And you bring that forward when it comes to, you know, being the leader in a pandemic. And then you're leaving behind this massive investment in giving 
thousands, maybe tens of thousands of professionals the ability to keep on loving, to keep on caring. You can't have a better legacy than that. <laughs> I mean, that's an incredible legacy. And I told, I told y'all from the beginning, relatable, <laughs> practical, inspirational. Thank you for the job you did here in California. We needed you the most. You need some care now for yourself, but we will see you very, very soon. And thank you for being a part of the Uncommon Ground community. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. As I leave you, I want to point you towards some resources that you might find helpful during these really trying times. In response to one of our listeners, Dr. Burke-Harris mentioned that Sesame Street had a great resource for discussing grief with your kids. So we're going to link to those resources in our episode notes. If you want to hear more from Dr. Burke-Harris herself, and trust me, you do, I recommend you check out her viral TED Talk about the lasting effects of childhood trauma and what the medical establishment can and should do about it. You can find that linked in our episode notes as well. And lastly, Dr. Burke Harris has a great book. It's not just about trauma. It's also about how we can heal. It's called The Deepest Well, and you can find it in bookstores or as an audiobook on Audible. Look, these are unprecedented times for parents, for kids, for everybody. I really enjoyed getting to hear your questions. I hope you found the whole episode insightful and helpful. Talk to you next week. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adesua Agbanile, and Lindsay Cradlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Waltneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jackman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.